Welcome to Geeks and Jacks Podcast. Welcome back to Geeks and Jacks, the podcast on video games, TV, film, sports, and whatever's on my mind. This is Ryan Sullivan, and I hope you listeners are bundling up in the East Coast. Frigid temperatures and potentially a big snowstorm coming soon. Potentially. Uh, so, for this episode, talking about the continuation of the sign-stealing scandal of Major League Baseball, uh, recap of the last couple weeks of the NFL playoffs, and my thoughts on the Super Bowl, my thoughts on award ceremonies a little bit because of the co- continued criticism of certain films being snubbed, and speculation on a revised switch for speculation that it's going to be similar to PlayStation 4 Pro and Xbox One X. So that side, uh, let's begin with the biggest thing to begin 2020, and that is the Houston Astros, which once again last week uh, dominated the headlines for uh, what happened to manager A.J. Hinch and general manager Jeff Lunau. So, to back up a little bit, um, a lot of the controversy began around the end of October, and the first big thing that happened, that but it wasn't related to the sign stealing, was the toxic culture when Brandon Tomlin, the assistant to Lunau, after the Astros eliminated the Yankees from the playoffs in the American League Championship Series shouted, we're glad we got Osunia, we're effing glad we got Osunia to uh, three female reporters, one of which was a Sports Illustrator writer who told about the negative culture surrounding the uh, Astros. And there was, um, I think Tobman might have said that on purpose because of how vocal the one, one of the reporters was about getting uh, Osunia because Osunia was um, charged with domestic violence and although the charges were dropped the uh, the league still suspended uh, him for 75 games and when he was traded from Toronto to Houston in uh, mid midway through the 2018 season uh, he still served his suspension and it was pretty much there for 2019. Uh, so that happened, and the Astros tried to smear the reporter who told about the story, and just about everyone was like, nah, she was lying and all that. The only one that felt bad was and was A.J. Hinch. And that says a lot about how toxic the culture was in, in Houston and how bad it got. And then not too long as the World Series was going via The Athletic from Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellich, a story from Mike Fires, who pretty much exposed the Astros as cheaters. And so he went on about what happened during the 2017 season. And just to let people know, Fires was with the Astros for three years, from 2015 through 2017. So he got a World Series ring out of it. But when he left to go to Detroit and then Oakland, which is his current team at the moment, I believe, uh, Fires told teammates about what the Astros were doing. And there had been stuff that Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, said following an incident in September of 2017 with the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees when the Red Sox were were cheating via using an Apple wristwatch and the Yankees were used a, a dugout phone improperly. And so Manfred basically said, in a way, that whoever cheats this way again, electronically or whatever, they're going to get punished severely. And it took a while for him to come up with punishments. So so what happened? So what is sign stealing? Sign stealing, it's been around for a very long time, for probably well over a century. And the idea is you try to figure out what the 
pitcher is trying to throw. So the idea that, okay, maybe he's going to throw that fastball. Maybe he's going to throw a sinker or, I don't know, you, you're trying to figure out how to beat the pitcher at his own game. And, yeah. So what the Astros did is that they were very much an analytical team and looked at everything about you know how to play the game and all that. And one of the things that they came up with was that they would have a camera in uh, center field and they would aim it at the catcher so that you can get a good look at um, his at his area for where he would call the signs. And so you would have, you know, like let's say one was a fastball, two was a curveball, three maybe a splitter. And so what would happen was anytime there was like a fastball, you know, no one would do anything. And so when there would be like a curveball or something like that and they would have a monitor near the dugout area and if they saw that it was going to be like a breaking ball a curveball they would bang a trash can and to notify of the player the batter that okay this is what's coming maybe hold off on swinging and the stats were through the roof because they were a lot better the Astros at you know miss at miss swings and all that they were they were able to hold off better compared to most most teams and so one of the big things that happened is that there's this guy on the internet his name is uh, Jimmy O'Brien aka John Boy Media on YouTube and one of the things he did was he found a game from September 2017 and it was not too long I believe after Manfred issued his warnings to all 30 teams and so it was a game between the Chicago White Sox and the Houston Astros yeah the Astros and Danny Farquhar the reliever for the White Sox at the time was throwing his pitches to Avin Gaddis and then the way that happened was that Farquhar could hear the banging and there was three, four instances of banging. So he gets his catcher to come with him to the mound and talk about it because they know something's up. They know something is up and they try to figure out what to do next and so they mix up the signs and all that and they strike out Gaddis. Pretty much that's pretty much the evidence right now that implicates how bad the situation is with with Houston. It definitely makes their World Series championship that they won very much a, uh, an asterisk one because the amount of games they probably did at home with that kind of stuff is probably through the roof, and there's probably more than enough evidence to implicate the Astros as big perennial cheaters. It is probably one of the biggest scandals of baseball. Probably one of the biggest since I would argue Pete Rose and and the nineteen nineteen Black Sox scandal. That's how bad it is. And it it's frustrating because this this was a feel good story in two thousand seventeen because of all the bad things that were happening in the city of Houston with the floodings and the hurricanes and all that and it just you know, it it breaks a lot of people's hearts, you know, how bad a city gets from from bad weather. It just is. So unfortunately this is gonna be held with a lot of taint to it and it's gonna feel very much like a tainted championship because it just with all that stuff it's like how much of an advantage did they really have and it was very huge because you get a you get a better record at home and it culminates with the big record you have altogether of course you're going to have home field advantage in the playoffs pure and simple so it's it's sad we have to talk about it but you know what it's a shame because the Astros have really good players 
you know, when you think about it, you, a good lineup of guys. You got Al, Jose Altuve, George Springer, Carlos Correa, uh, Josh Reddick, Alex Bregman, and really this year, Yuri Gurriel and uh, Jordan Alvarez, Michael Brantley. I mean, they had a good group of players. Why? And even some of the guys that were there for the 2017 series, like Gaddis and I believe. Brian McCann and Carlos Beltran and a couple others. So, why cheat? Why cheat when you know you have a good team? This is a team that's good enough to play the game naturally. Your guess is going to be as good as mine because, you know, with how bad this is, it not just the Astros as a whole, but Major League Baseball, I mean, this this is a huge black eye for the sport. And a lot of players, a lot of people, their lives were altered because of, because of this. And you think about it, you know, think about the Yankees. Joe Girardi was let go after, after losing in the 2017 ALCS. If he were to have won that series and win a World Series, would he have stayed? Would the Steinbrenners have let him stay? That's the question people now ask. It's, you know, you could say that he could have came back, but or that similar to uh, <clears throat> Jimmy Johnson in the Dallas Cowboys, he would have been gone probably even if they won the World Series. But you never know now. It's, it's all what-ifs. You know, and uh, MVP to Jose Altuve, how tainted is it? That's hard to tell. So, in the in the midst of all this came other scandals, scandal ideas that that the Astros were using electronic buzzers to figure out pitches. Because I mean, obviously, when you hear stuff like, obviously, when teams are aware of the garbage cans and all that, Astros, the Astros are going to know that okay, we got to figure out a different strategy. So. And there was stuff like the whistling, which the Yankees did complain about. Um, and then, of course, the buzzers. And could the buzzer have been on Altuve when he hit the game-winning home run in Game 6 of the ALCS this year? I mean, tons of questions. And it just you don't know what's going to happen next. Because uh, last week, um, MLB suspended Hinch and Lunau for a year. They, the organization lost $5 million, and they lost draft picks in the first and second round for this upcoming year, and 2021, not too long after that, uh, owner Jim Crane fired Hinch and Lunau, and so, and at the time last week, I thought, okay, it's a fine punishment. It's not it's not that strict, but it's not too lenient either. And now with the firings last, and with the firings coming very shortly after, like within a half hour tops, Jim Crane is trying to save face and not be, not have his name involved with these guys. But that stench is going to be part of Jim, a part of Jim Crane for forever until he's dead. And who knows what can happen next, because you you could have another guy who Crane could let cheat. But Hinch, Hinch basically, from what I read, he tried to stop the whole thing, but he was too chicken to do it. He broke monitors and stuff like that, but it's like it, he didn't try to tell the players to stop, and he apologized. And I think, out of all the guys that have been fired recently, Hinch probably has the biggest chance to get back into baseball. He has the biggest chance. And I think he will be back on a baseball diamond one day. How long? I'm not sure. But it's his damaged reputation is going to need to be fixed. No doubt in my mind, he, he will have to make amends and do a ton of things right to fix to fix his relationship with the league as a whole. But I, he, he should be back on a team very soon, and within a few years or so. 
uh, Luna basically tried to, from what I read, tried to basically say, I didn't cheat. I didn't try to cheat. And I don't think it's genuine. And it just sucks that he couldn't do any, he, he couldn't stop the cheating either. And for him to deny that they cheated, it just makes him look even more guilty than ever. It just does. And as a result, I don't think he'll ever manage a team ever again, you know, or be a general manager for a team ever again. That that's that's the that's the sad reality of it. And so there have been people online that have been trying to say try and make it look less guilty by talking about like the Yankees and the whole steroid allegations and all that. Here's the thing though. These are individuals with the steroids, so and even if they weren't caught, I mean it's I mean, yeah, it looks bad, but I don't know what I'm trying to say. If those are individuals. You can't just punish an entire team because oh, one or two guys took steroids. And it wouldn't surprise me if every team took ster had a guy that took steroids or PEDs or whatever. It would wouldn't surprise me if that happened. So, and, I mean, are you going to punish the Red Sox because Manny Ramirez and David Ortiz may have taken steroids? May have taken PEDs? I mean, you're going to have to do that with just about every organization that has won a World Series in the last 30 years or so, maybe 35 years. And the sad thing out of this is that there brings forth conspiracies and one of which is the son of Scott Brocious saying Mike Trout takes HGH. That is dumb. Why say that? Mike Trout is a big boy. That's he's, he's got a big body, and it's got the good strength to hit those home runs and grit those doubles and have that speed and throw that arm and all that. No, he's just a natural five-tool player. It's like Pete... It's like if people start saying that Aaron Judge takes steroids. No, he's just a very big boy. He's built to look like a football player or a basketball player. That's how big of a frame he has. That's how good he is with pounding the baseball. <laughs> so these conspiracies and all that, it's just it's just a load of crap because of because people want to find a way to defend the Astros. The Astros are going to get booed tremendously heading into this upcoming season. No matter the ballpark, they're going to be booed at tremendously. And it's, uh, it's also sad that even though the it, I wouldn't be surprised that the entire team took part in sign-stealing electronically. Now, sign-stealing something that is common with baseball? Absolutely, but to to steal electronically—I mean, that's that's a that's a shame, and it's a shame also that they are protected by the union, the players' association, and these players. And it just—they're not going to get any real punishment. And I don't know how you're supposed to punish them. That's the one thing I can I can't figure out. How do you punish players? I have no answer, quite frankly. And if it's something along the lines of maybe a fine or something, or there's no way they're going to get suspended. There's no way. And it's just... There has to be a way to punish the players without it being too severe, I guess. I don't know. Either way, it just... Like I said, it paints a big black guy. And not too long following the... Uh, firings of Lunau and Hinch, the Boston Red Sox got rid of Alex Cora. And it, Cora, he's the one that will least likely get back on a baseball diamond because he was the bench coach for the Astros in 2017, which he they speculate he is the mastermind behind the whole sign-stealing scandal. And that wouldn't surprise me if he did considering the Red Sox are under fire a little bit for what they did in 2018 
with using a replay room to check on signs of the catcher whenever a guy was on second base. And that was for 2018. That was the championship year for the Red Sox. So that paints an even darker picture for for Cora. This guy's been around baseball for a very long time, going back to the late 90s. And it just... I, like, why continue the cheating? I mean, sure, it got you a championship, but at what cost? I mean, it's just... And with new management underway, with like a new GM and all that stuff, it's like they could use this as, as an excuse to retool their team. And speaking of which, I'm not even sure if Mookie Betts is even going to be going somewhere. Or if he's going to stay with with Boston. J.D. Martinez is staying, but the question is, will Betts stay, or will they deal with him soon? I think it's a mistake, if I'm Boston, it's a mistake to get rid of Mookie. Because he can do everything. Sure, he had a down year compared to 2018, but it was still a pretty good year. Why, why? I just, I, I've never understood why to get rid of, of, of players that you know are that good. It's just, it's just, it, it, it's, it's mind-boggling to me. And although they haven't suspended him yet, uh, which I don't, which I think they will soon, I would think. Uh, it just, I don't think. Cora will if it if it's not a lifetime ban, it's gonna be one of those um, multi-year suspensions. I mean, it's at worst maybe three years, at best maybe two. But I mean, it's I don't know how you what kind of punishment they're gonna give Cora. Now the only other thing that happened is Carlos Beltran, and he was the only player mentioned in the MLB reports. So he was supposedly one of the big ringleaders of the uh, masterminds of one of the of the sign stealing. And it occurred when after he got signed up after he signed up to be the Mets manager and now with all the pressure mounting not too long after Cora got fired and Lunau and Hinch, I mean, the Mets parted ways, and so three teams without managers. I mean, just although although Beltron was a player, he could be protected by the players' union because he wasn't a manager or anything in 2017, and supposedly Cora, I guess this past season mentioned about Beltron working with the Yankees and I guess maybe the Yankees trying to cheat or something. At least that's what I heard. At least that's what I heard or read. I don't know. It's just I don't think the Yankees are that stupid enough to, to cheat that way. I mean, they're just... I don't know. I mean, with that speculation, anybody could be cheating by doing stuff, you know, legally, electronically. I mean... There's probably someone that else that has. So, but regardless, um, so the whole Met thing. I mean, it's just it just it's just more dysfunction for the Mets. And what's even bad, what's worse about it is that I view it as kind of a conflict of interest when you have ESPN analyst Jessica Mendoza ripping Mike Fires for for exposing the Astros and saying it didn't sit well with her. I mean, she is one of the worst analysts for baseball. And it, and she's also part of, she's like an advisor to the Mets. So it, it, it paints an even bad picture, even badder picture for her, considering that ESPN is looking to revitalize Sunday Night Baseball. And the speculation is they could be getting rid of Matt Vasgersian and Mendoza potentially. They want to keep Alex Rodriguez in the booth. So, is this the tipping part where they might say, 
all right, you're done. You know, or but I could see her being on ESPN still. I mean, if you want her still involved with baseball, have her as a pregame person. Or if she's not doing softball coverage, do be part of baseball tonight or whatever they have for the pregames, like I said. But it looks real bad on her part because it's basically her saying, we should have, he shouldn't have said anything. If he didn't, more cheating could happen. And it, it sucks for those players that got affected by the Astros really badly, those minor league players, because they, it's unlike most of the other sports, unfortunately, pitchers only have maybe one or two chances to make a name for themselves and maybe get a spot on the major league team. And if they get rocked up by the by the major league team they're facing, the potential of being in the minors forever goes up significantly. And you might get one more chance or you're stuck in the minors forever. That like if if fires didn't say anything, hundreds, if not thousands, of people's jobs and lives would be altered because of the cheating. And I do think, I do think, it, I mean, obviously, it's not sitting well with some people, and some people are glad that he exposed it. And the question now is, does Boston and um, Houston get vacated their titles? That's not going to solve anything. It none of the, you, that doesn't solve whatever pains that the Yankees and the Dodgers went through. I mean, especially when you consider that you Darvish, his legacy is now pretty much broken because of the two World Series games he was in during that 2017 World Series. So. What do you, so what happens? Do people forgive Darvish and Kershaw and all of them? Do they forgive Aaron Judge or CeCe Sabathia or whatever? I don't know. But I don't see the point in vacating. I would say have it with an asterisk and say that although they won it, it, it it's in huge controversy. That's all I can say on that. And that pretty much wraps up the baseball part of this podcast and moving on to the NFL we got our Super Bowl team set up it's going to be the San Francisco 49ers against the Kansas City Chiefs in two weeks and to recap the last couple weeks of the playoffs let's begin with the AFC beginning with the Tennessee Titans and they were able to knock off the Baltimore Ravens a week after knocking off the New England Patriots. Beating the number one offense, I mean, that must have been a lot of satisfaction considering the amount of yards Derrick Henry had running. I think he ran with like 190. And the defense played very well, stopping the Ravens on fourth down twice during the game and picking off Lamar Jackson. It just, they created turnovers when they needed to. And that was and that was a good victory for them. And although Lamar Jackson had a great game throwing the ball statistically, and the big problem was the defense was not up to snuff against Derrick Henry. And obviously the run game suffered a little bit with Mark Ingram not being in. I think he had some issues with like a shoulder, I believe, or a calf issue. But still, I mean that that was one that was the big upset I think for for the playoffs and for Kansas City uh, they were down 24 nothing against the Houston Texans and just it was just ridiculous being up 24 not 21 nothing at the end of the first quarter I mean that's that's something you don't think of really how do they come back well they came back and by halftime Chiefs were up 28-24 and the final score wound up being 51-31 on account of Patrick Mahomes doing very well throwing for I believe like four touch three or four touchdowns 
three of which went to Travis Kelsey, and the run game did pretty well with uh, Damian Williams having three scores, two on the ground, one in the air. And the defense tightening up after the first quarter. If that's the kind of magic Steve Spagnuolo knows, that's how he won a championship with the Giants in 07. He knows when to be good and when to fix the team when needed. Just ridiculous how good that was. And with the title game between the Titans and the Chiefs, I mean, the defense for the Chiefs, like the run game was not one of their big... The, the, the run defense was not one of their big strengths this year. So to be able to contain Derrick Henry and make him gain less than 70 yards, that's a huge accomplishment to, to make the rushing leader not have a good game. And Ryan Tannehill actually put up decent numbers, 200 yards and two touchdowns. He had a good game, but it wasn't enough, and they squandered a 10-point lead twice. Patrick Mahomes obviously just can do whatever he wants with throwing the ball. But the key thing would be how their how the defense held its own in the second half. Yeah, well, actually, you know, they held their own quite a bit and were able to make the plays when needed just so the offense can get back on the field and show off some of that show off some of the heroics of of the offense and so forth it just it's just Kansas City it's just they, they, they make it to their first Super Bowl in 50 years going back to Super Bowl 4 when they beat the Minnesota Vikings under head coach Hank Strom and exactly this is no joke and I read it 800 games later on the dot and it's Amazing that, you know, with all the ghosts of playoffs past, that the Chiefs were able to win. Win these two games and just finally they get to be in a modern day Super Bowl, which they were that close last year and they were close in 1993. In the NFC, I mean, the 49ers. It, the big thing about the 49ers is their ground game, and that's how good it was These this game and the game prior. Tevin Coleman had a good game against the Minnesota Vikings, rushing for over 100 yards and two touchdowns. The defense played a phenomenal game. They did not let up on, on Dalvin Cook. Cook wound up with like less than 30 yards total. It was like 18 yards rushing and like 8 yards receiving on 6 catches. 6 catches. That's pretty bad when you know that they contained him pretty well. And they made Kirk Cousins week a living hell. He just wasn't comfortable. He was sacked quite a bit. Picked off a couple times. And just... And even the even the special teams was bad for Minnesota when they muffed a couple kicks, and one of which they muffed a kickoff, and 49ers were able to recover. That's how strong the defense is for San Francisco, and that's how good the special teams are too. When you look at all that stuff that happened, and then you look at the uh, Green Bay game against the Seahawks, and this is where I where I'll connect it with the. Uh, with with the uh, Sunday's game. Now, last week, they uh, faced the Seattle Seahawks. Seahawks beat the Philadelphia Eagles prior to facing Green Bay. And Aaron Rodgers had an okay game. He threw for 240. About two-thirds of it went to uh, Devontae Adams, who was a pretty good receiver. I mean, he's been one of the dominant guys over the last four years or so. Stepped up in the wake of guys like Jordy Nelson not being around anymore or injured injuries and all that you know he's been pretty much the main threat in the passing game and this year the run game was one of the biggest strengths to Green Bay Matt LaFleur had a very good year very good for a rookie season in Packer history Aaron Jones the running back had two touchdowns despite 60 yards but overall, I mean, it was 
pretty good early on, and then they crumbled a little bit and almost lost the game. If it wasn't for Rodgers' key passes late in the game, you could be seeing a you could have been seeing a Seahawk 49er NFC Championship game in San Francisco. That's how crazy it could have been. But whatever whatever they watched for that week, uh, San Francisco knew how to beat Green Bay, and Green Bay shot themselves in the foot a couple of times with a couple fumbles, defensive pressure that led to Rodgers getting sacked a little bit, and just by the time they got scoring points in the second half, it was too little, too late. I think that's the story of Green Bay, just that after that first half against the Seahawks, they just didn't look good. They just looked terrible. Just just atrocious. That's the best way I could describe this. Uh, San Francisco pretty much ran the ball down their, down their throats, and the defense, which was questionable this year, just couldn't stop Raheem Mostert. That's how phenomenal he had a game. And this was a guy that was on six different teams prior to being with the 49ers. And with that running back trio that Kyle Shanahan has created, it is one of the most lethal running teams in all of the NFL. That's how dangerous they are. And Jimmy Garoppolo hasn't had to do much in these two games on account of the run game being good, number one. And number two, just the defense creating all this pressure, creating the containment of the running backs and just picking off the the the, the quarterback and all that. It just That's how good this team is. And I think they are the favorite to win the Super Bowl. So my thoughts on that is this. If I'm the Chiefs, I'm doing whatever I can to stop that run game. Run defense may not be the greatest, but you got to figure out a way to stop Mostert, Matt Breda, and if he comes back, which I doubt, Tevin Coleman. That's how dangerous they are. And if you're and if you're trying to stop the pass, you keep your eye on George Kittle and Emmanuel Sanders and and Debo Samuel. Those are your big threats. Create the pressure to make Jimmy Garoppolo make bad throws, and maybe have him fumble or throw interceptions out of all the guys that are playing, that played in the playoffs. Uh, Garoppolo had the highest interceptions at 13. So, I mean, there could be a point where he might have a little bit of butterflies in him. I think that'll be the case because he's going to start a Super Bowl, not be a backup. So, if I'm the 49ers, I'm trying to figure out how to stop Patrick Mahomes. I would keep eye on the on trying to contain him so that he doesn't run anywhere. But I would make sure I would be step by step with the uh, receivers, especially in the case of dealing with uh, Sammy Watkins and Travis Kelsey. The tight ends are going to be having a field day, especially Kelsey if he can get if he can get some touchdowns. I would do whatever I can, like I said, to contain Mahomes. And I would try to take advantage of running the ball. That's that's pretty much, I think, the matchup. And it should be, should be a good Super Bowl. That's the best I could say. It should be better on paper compared to what it was last year, legitimately. Um... My prediction, San Francisco wins 30-21. And with it being 100 years of the NFL, they announced a centennial class for for in honor of 100 years. And it began with two coaches getting nominated, getting, being honored to be in that centennial class, and that was Bill Cowher and Jimmy Johnson. Bill Cowher coached as a you know, maybe like a DB coach or whatever he had he did defensive guy for um, a number of teams before joining the Pittsburgh Steelers as the head coach in 1992, replacing the legend Chuck Knoll. And he had a pretty good run in his 15 years as a Steeler coach, winning Super Bowl 40 and being in two Super Bowls, the other one being Super Bowl 30 
having a great run game throughout his coaching tenure. Some quarterback issues here and there, but still a, a rise back to the glory days of Pittsburgh. May not be Iron Curtain days, but or Steel Curtain, the Steel Curtain, but still a, a return to glory. And Jimmy Johnson, I mean, he revived the uh, Dallas Cowboys in the 90s, winning two straight Super Bowls. And although the 95 team won with Barry Switzer, that was still Jimmy's team. And I think the debate on whether he belongs in the Hall of Fame or not, I think you kind of have to put him in a little bit because he's the reason why Dallas became such a powerhouse in the 90s. Despite him being there for only four seasons in the 90s. And you could make the debate on Miami a little bit, especially with his final game being a 62-7 to blowout loss to Jacksonville. I mean, I think he kind of deserves it because of the way he, like I said, the way he built Dallas and revived them. Other notable guys for the for this centennial class, which was 15 of them, Harold Carmichael, who was a big-name receiver for the Philadelphia Eagles in the 70s and early 80s. Jim Cover, who was a lineman for the Chicago Bears in the from the mid-80s up until 1990. Part of that Super Bowl XX group with, with beating the Patriots. Bobby Dillon, one of the big defensive backs for the Packers, I believe, back in the 50s. The next guy on that list is Cliff Harris. One of the big names of the 70s defense for the Dallas Cowboys. Winston Hill was a lineman who protected Joe Namath in the 60s and 70s. I believe he was part of that Super Bowl three win that the Jets had over the Baltimore Colts. Next on that list is Alex Karras, an interesting figure, which a lot of people might remember him more so for blazing saddles than his lengthy 12-year career with the Detroit Lions. Interesting one because he was suspended a year for gambling, and some say that might be the reason why he never got into the Hall of Fame. Um, been dead for quite a while. I forget when he passed away, but you know, truly probably a big honor for, for the Lions as a whole. Just saying. Uh, Steve Sable, who was involved with who whose father created NFL films and with the way they did stuff and the videos and all that they won so many Emmys under under Steve Sable I mean honestly I mean guys like them they made an impact for the game maybe not on the field but definitely with the way you have all the television set up and all the cameras and all that just unbelievable next up is Donnie Shell who was part of the Steel Curtain defense of the 70s. One of the bigger names for uh, for the Steelers. Another guy on the list is Duke Slater, who was one of the first examples of African Americans being in the NFL back in the 1920s. One of the teams he played for was the uh, Chicago Cardinals. Next up, Max Speedy, who was a Browns receiver. Had a pretty good career that had like 7,000 receiving yards, which is, I mean, considering the 40s and 50s, that is very impressive. Then there was Ed Sprinkle, who uh, did a, played a lot of positions when he was with the Bears in the 40s and 50s. The next two are not players. Paul Tagliabue, who was the commissioner of the NFL from 1989 all the way up through 2006, saw the rise of television, especially when Fox made their bid for the NFL in 93. He had 28 teams to 32, which included Jacksonville and Carolina, Baltimore moving with the move from uh, Cleveland to Baltimore, the revival of Cleveland, and the Houston Texans. Um, questionable stuff like concussions and all that have been part of his resume a little bit too. Injuries and all that and just trying to protect the players as a whole, the the whole collective bargaining agreement, free agency in the 90s. I mean, just, I mean, there's definitely a lot of positives, some negatives there, but uh, yeah, you could see why he's 
in the uh, Hall of Fame now for that centennial class. And last on that list is the late George Young, who was part of a number of teams in the 60s and 70s, you know, in the front office and all that. But his biggest fame is when he revived the New York Giants, who had been struggling quite a bit for a long time. And by the time he retired in 1997 with them, he had gotten the franchise to win two Super Bowls, not get a number of guys that would make an impact on the game, which included Bill Parcells, Lawrence Taylor, and other notables to lead the way for a franchise that now has up to four Super Bowls and eight championships total in their long and storied franchise. So yeah, that's the uh, centennial class of 2020 in honor of a hundred years of the NFL. So sports out of the way. I know it's been long. It's been about 45 minutes. Uh, So there's always this criticism in the movie industry of awards being biased and all that stuff. There's always the snubs and surprises, and it's gotten a lot of traction, I think, over the last couple of years because of all this diversity stuff and and you know genders and colors and all that. I don't know how you're supposed to fix all that. Like, what what are you supposed to do? That would be my main question as a whole because it, it it's hard to not. It's hard to nominate all these movies and stuff and only have five nominations per category or four or whatever. But now these days, I mean, we have so many awards that it's just... I don't see the controversy. or It's just... This year, it's like they... There was this big stink um, over, like, certain movies not getting nominated, like like Little Women and like Uncut Gems and just a couple other films that just, you know, it's like, I don't know what you're supposed to do. I mean, it's, you you have years where it's loaded with tons of big name movies that, that have very good quality and then you have also the art house films that, you know, they're fighting for spots and it's hard to, give awards out because, you know, audiences are looking at the movies that that they definitely have seen in theaters and maybe they don't want to see that one film that didn't make like twenty million win that award. I just I'm no expert. I'm far from it. It's just there's it's just there's a lot of these other awards. It's like you got like M T V awards, you got NACCP awards. You got all this. There's just so many other awards stuff that it doesn't make the Oscars and Academy Awards looks look that special anymore. It just isn't. And I know they're trying to get ratings for all this stuff, but it's like I don't know how you're supposed to get people back into watching all this. Even other, even like minors award stuff. It's like the way networks are now these days with like the conglomerates like say Turner for example they try to get all their channels to wa- to have all these awards shows on them like TBS and TNT and True TV on the same on the same day and all that and same hours and all that i mean not much else i can talk about that's all I can. That's that's all I can say. It's just. It just. It's going to be divisive. It's always going to be that way. But how much people make a big stink about it? I mean, maybe things can change over time. I don't know. And last on that list of stuff to talk about for this episode, um, there is speculation on a potential revised Nintendo Switch. Now, back in the fall, there was a Switch Lite, which took out the home console capabilities of the Switch. And so, I mean, it was $200, and, you know, 
some people like it some people don't and there's potential this year to be a pro version of the Switch and more than likely it'll be similar to what Sony and Microsoft have done with the uh, PlayStation 4 Pro and the Xbox One X and it seems like a good idea on paper because you want people to see that untapped power of the uh, of what Nintendo could potentially do and have much better handling of specific titles that may not be the greatest on regular Switch hardware, but with a Pro, should be a piece of cake. Should be a huge piece of cake. But that's just that's just an idea that on on what I'm thinking of and just pure uh, speculation because you I mean it's hard to know if that stuff will come out plus the way Nintendo handles things with um, with revising and all that there they might have a couple of games that are only exclusive on the Switch Pro and that's a bad idea because they did that with a couple of games I think for the 3DS when they re-released and called it like the new 3DS where it had like better power I think and better controls and all that I believe so I don't know it's just I, I, I think I think there's I think there's a market to have a pro version of the switch I really do but considering that Nintendo might screw it up I mean but I I, I think I think they'll release something like this soon they would have to especially when ps5 and uh, Xbox Series X is coming out in November. And speaking of which, I mean, I would be curious to see where they go with the uh, PS5 and uh, Xbox Series X. See how those do within the first month of release. Depends on when they'll announce stuff like the pricing and what games are being announced. I just hope they don't delay some of the stuff like say... The Last of Us Part 2 just so it can coincide with being released on the PS5 or something like that. You know, it it would feel nice to play the game on PS4, you know. So, um, not much else I can say for this episode. Definitely we'll have an episode in a couple weeks, day after the Super Bowl, record record the next episode and say my thoughts on it and talk about whatever's on my mind. <laughs> so with that, this has been Geeks and Jacks. I am Ryan Sullivan and hope to hear you listeners on the next podcast.